I think we'll start with questions from our virtual audience first. And today for the first time, we are joined by hundreds of people from across the world on, a, on our live broadcast on the internet. So welcome to all of you, those who are present in reality here and those who are virtually present. Let's have a, a question from the internet audience, yes. We have received numerous questions on the subject of consciousness. These are from Swamini, Musumi, Suresh, Tapas, Shubhadeep, Shuman, Pankaj, Sridhar, and Lokesh. Acharyas repeatedly say you are that infinite existence. I am the awareness, absolute, etc. Who is the I and you that the teaching is referring to? Who or what experiences whom or what? What is chitta? What is the difference between chitta and consciousness? Okay, let's just stop there. We'll take it one by one, otherwise I'll forget. We'll, and then I'll, I'll, I'll reply to these and then I'll go on to the next question, so just wait. So when the, the Upanishadic texts say that thou art, you are that, or it says I am Brahman, you know, in Sanskrit, Tattvamasi, Aham Brahmasmi. These are the Mahavakyas, the great statements you find in the Upanishads. So if you ask, who is the you, who is the I here? Very simply said, very simply put, the you means the student. The teacher is telling the student, you are Brahman. When you say, I am Brahman, this jiva realizes itself. This individual sentient being realizes itself as Brahman, the Absolute Consciousness. What Vedanta says, it's like this. Our experience, if we look very clearly at our experience, I am a sentient being and I'm looking at all of this, this world. And if I'm particularly religious, I believe that there is a power which creates all these things that I experience. So three things. You, the experiencer, this experienced world, and an unseen reality which is behind this experienced world. In Sanskrit, drashta, drishya, and drishya nirmata. Drashta means the seer, drishya means the seen. Seen means experienced. And something which generates all of these things. Why is the third one necessary? Because an explanation of all that we experience seems to be necessary. Our mind asks for it. Why are all of these things appearing? Why in this particular way? Why in this sequence? There is a why you're asking. An answer to that why is that generator of all these experiences, these objects, these, these worlds and all these people are in more simple language the jiva, individual being, the world, and God. Atma, Jagat, Paramatma. Or in very simple sense, uh, Hindi, when Swami put it this way, Main, Yah, Vah. 
I, this, that. That means thou actually. Thou means thou my lord. So I, me, this person, and whatever I experience throughout my life, that's the this. And that mysterious thing behind everything which is the cause of all of this. What Vedanta says is, all of these three are appearing in one undivided awareness. I, this and thou, all three, individual, world and God, all three, Jiva, Jagatishwara, all three, these differences are appearing in one undifferentiated awareness. That one undifferentiated awareness is Brahman, the Absolute. So when the teacher tells you, you are Brahman, he is telling you, the individual, that your reality is Brahman. But the reality of the world is also Brahman. And the reality of God is also Brahman. This is the meaning of I and you in those statements when he is asking. The consequence of this is remarkable. The consequence of this is everything that you experience, you yourself are none other than the, than the ultimate reality, Brahman. And everything that you experience is your beloved Lord, is, is God. Vivekananda said, never approach anything except as God. God here in the ultimate sense, ultimate reality. And God is also that ultimate reality. We are all one in that absolute consciousness. That is the meaning of I and that. The question is asking what is that and who experiences what. The individual being does not experience that absolute because it's not an object of experience. What is an object of experience? The world. In one word, the world is called this. You can always refer to the world as this. This person, this chair, this world, this moon, this sun, this galaxy, this quark or this super string or whatever. This, an object. And something unseen beyond the object. Thou, my Lord. And I, the experiencer. Vedanta says all three are actually one reality. Yeah. So, practically what does it mean? When we deal with anything in this world, you are dealing with God. You are dealing with your, most, your, your beloved, the Lord. Be careful in your, they say, in vavahara, in dealing, in your transaction. Vivekananda said, never approach anything except as God. The person you are meeting, the stranger, is the Lord. Your most intimate, beloved God is that stranger. That irritating person is also God. Even the meanest object, one day in the village in, in Jairambati, somebody was sweeping the courtyard and Ma Sharada was there. And this person was sweeping the courtyard, threw the broomstick away after sweeping. And mother said, what is that my child? What did you do my child? You pick it up and she picked it up carefully and put it in the corner. Everything, look at the word she used. Everything has its own dignity. Even the meanest broomstick has its own dignity. That means every person has, its own, has their own dignity. This dignity and the respect that we are supposed to give is, runs very deep because it takes you straight to God. The God before whom you bow down, kneel down in worship in temple, church and mosque, 
That God is present to you in the form of the colleague, in the husband, in the wife, in the child, in the stranger, in the friend, and yes, even in the so-called enemy. This is the consequence of Advaita, seeing the same consciousness everywhere. That's how it has a, it's not just theory, it's not just an interesting philosophy, just not a wonderful speculation. It has a direct bearing on our day-to-day -day activities. Everything that we do, everything that we say, and every thought that we think. Now another question, pretty simple. What is the difference between Chitta and Chit? Was, was, was that the question? What is Chitta? What is the difference between Chitta and Consciousness? And Consciousness, correct. Chitta means mind. In two senses, one is the mind stuff. The lake of the mind. Com compare your mind to a lake and all the thoughts and emotions and feelings and memories and ideas to little waves in that lake. This lake itself is called the Chitta. That's why in Yoga Sutras it is said, Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodha. Cessation of the movements of the mind is called Yoga. Calming the lake of the mind. First of all, you must become aware of the mind. Many people these days are so extroverted that they are not even aware of the mind. All that we are aware of is the world. There. Exciting. Nice. Exciting. What is it? Uh, Avengers movie. <laughs> Exciting. I'm looking forward to that. I apologize because I was in Hollywood, and that would everybody would be excited for every new release of the movie. Sometimes you would walk down to the library um, near Hollywood Boulevard. Once I saw a whole block cordoned off, and I had to take. Uh, and and um, people were not being allowed. There were security guards everywhere. There's huge canvas covering. Something was underneath that secret. You can't see it. So I asked, uh, what's there? This is the set of the new Star Wars movie. That was two years ago. Um, and nobody, it's a secret. Until it's unveiled, the stars are going to come tonight and they're going to unveil it. And uh, they're Hollywood kind of stars, not the sky. <laughs> and then there'll be a show. Now everybody was being stopped, but because of this dress, I, maybe they thought I was part of the movie or something. <laughs> so they didn't stop me. And I walked into the, into the set. <laughs> Nobody could do that. Even I think the film reporters and all were not even allowed to do that. So I lifted the canvas and peeked in. And there was this huge, they call it the X-Wing fighter. Bigger than this building. There's a mock-up of that. Space, space plane or something. It was there. <laughs> then I think the security guard got uh, suspicious. The wife, if he's part of the movie, why is he peeking? <laughs> and he told me to <laughs> move out of... Uh, exciting, something exciting. But look at this, something exciting in this world, unfortunately it has become virtual. Our excitement is on, on the silver screen. Even that was alright. Now our excitement is on the little screen in the hand. <laughs> Mobile phone. Consciously, unconsciously. That I'm on the mobile phone, I'm not even conscious of that. Automatic, it's become a, a natural reaction. Your mobile phone siddha. Siddha means perfected in the practice of the mobile phone. Naturally, like Sri Ramakrishna used to say that the name of the God will, uh, name of God mantra will keep on coming, bubble up without any effort. The mobile phone bubbles up without any effort, relaxed. In fact, if you take it away, I've heard of babies screaming if their phones are taken away. Even babies have phones now. Now, 
chitta one must first become aware of what is going on in my own mind many people are not aware focused on the world focused on the silver screen focused on mobile screen so aware that my mind is in turmoil look inwards that chitta then it has to be calmed otherwise the mind controls us whatever happens in the mind we get attract attached to that and pulled along pulled along in our activities uh, in in the mind pulls you into the world outside and not even to the world outside it's usually to a screen small screen in your hand everybody has one of those infernal devices chitta that is mind all thoughts are mind and there's a technical sense in which chitta is used which is memory the storehouse of the mind so chitta is also memory but in a wider sense not only memory intellect emotions perception thoughts all of them are also chitta consciousness is that which is aware of the chitta when you look inwards there's a word introspection when you look inwards thoughts come up desires come up emotions come up if you say i'm annoyed i'm excited i am bored if i ask you do you feel that are you aware of the annoyance excitement and bored yeah that's why i'm saying i'm annoyed or excited or bored then that inward awareness it is caused by that that consciousness alone shines upon the the annoyance the excitement and the boredom these are movements in the lake of the mind and they are revealed by consciousness at this point often a question is why can't we say it is revealed or known by the mind itself mind knows the mind why are you talking about something else called the consciousness the reason is the mind is continuously changing is it not i who was annoyed a moment ago now i am peaceful i who was thinking that guy is very annoying now i think oh the swami said that guy is god oh i can't <laughs> the mind has changed and yet you are the one one which was aware of the annoyed mind you are the one which is aware of the reverential mind the change in the chitta appears to one and the same you if you are unchanging and the chitta is changing then how can i say that you and the chitta are the same if i am the chitta the mind stuff then the annoyance in the mind then i will be annoyance it goes away peaceful then i'll be peaceful how can i be both if the annoyance in the mind is me then i'll always be annoyed or if the annoyance goes away then i'm gone you see this requires thinking something comes and goes in the mind if i am that itself if the mind itself is knowing that uh, am i the mind the changing mind or am i the witness of the changes in the mind am i the experiencer of the changes in the mind you change clothes are you any particular dress any particular shirt or cloth or um, you know no if you wear any particular one then you would go when the, the dress is changed but no they come and go you are the same person you see the, the answer sometimes people will give a question that they raise a doubt but swami i don't get it what is wrong in saying sometimes i'm annoyed sometimes i'm peaceful which seems logical but is it 
<laughs> the, the way they teach in the one of the swamis was i'm just translating what he said in hindi sometimes i'm annoyed sometimes i'm peaceful why do i have to go about this complicated way saying that there is annoyance in the mind i'm the witness of the annoyance there is peace in the mind i'm the witness of the peace in the mind why do i simply say i'm annoyed i was annoyed and now i am peaceful that seems simple and the swami said ha kabhi gadha kabhi gaye main kabhi gadha hu kabhi gaye hu i'm sometimes an a donkey sometimes a cow no i'm not the two different entities sometimes i saw i saw a donkey then i saw a cow pass i am not the donkey or the cow if you think in that way then you will then you will modify your position and say yes sometimes the feeling of annoyance comes in my mind sometimes the feeling of peace comes in my mind ah then i will ask you what is it that knows that sometimes there is annoyance sometimes there is peace there you must admit a consciousness unchanging consciousness apart from the changing moods of the mind that is consciousness apart from the mind in sanskrit it is called chit it's very interesting in sanskrit if you see the words it's a language very suited for philosophical analysis chit and chitta chitta mind chitta add one more ta it becomes mind chit itself consciousness in sanskrit uh, one of the teachers said takara vishaya adhyasa what is the difference between consciousness and mind when you have objects appearing in consciousness the consciousness alone takes up the form of the mind they are not two different things one awareness in which mind arises mind arises from consciousness itself it is nothing other than consciousness itself but the changing objects of consciousness they uh, when you are aware of them it constitutes the mind and its activity the unchanging awareness is consciousness okay let's take one or two more questions everything we do is prompted by thoughts which are the functions of the mind so how does one experience consciousness in its purity without the mind all right how does one experience consciousness in its purity without the mind implicit in this is an assumption that just as i can see the cloth just as i can feel a touch on my hand just as i can sense my breathing just as i can introspect and see my thoughts in the same way i should be able to see consciousness itself but you cannot why not because consciousness itself is the seer of all of them it never becomes an object it's very simple and very difficult also at the same time because everything that we are experienced we have experienced so far in our lives and we will continue to experience in the rest of our lives they are all objects they may be physical objects like the clock or the microphone or they may be sensations like the feeling of a touch or warmth they may be thoughts feelings happy sad they are all objects that clock is a physical gross object a thought is a subtle object but they are all objects objects to whom what is the subject consciousness that consciousness never becomes an object 
Drigeva natu drishyate. The seer is never seen. It's ever the seer. I always give the example of your eyes. Your eyes see everything, but they cannot see themselves. You can only at the most see a reflection of your eyes in a mirror, but you cannot see your eyes directly. The way your eyes see this directly, in that way they cannot see themselves directly. Similarly, consciousness cannot make itself an object, but it can make everything else, its projections, an object. So how do you know? So the, the answer to this question will be, you do not experience consciousness as an object, then will the doubt will be, is consciousness ever unex, inex, unexperienced? It's never seen, never experienced at all. No, it is more than experienced. In and through every experience, you are experiencing consciousness. In the Kena Upanishad it is said, Pratibodha viditam matam amritattvam hivindate. In when you recognize that divinity, that consciousness, in every experience, in every knowledge, in every feeling, you, you find God. I'm using God in a very philosophical sense. You find that consciousness. Then you, you have attained immortality. You are enlightened then. So, how is consciousness itself to be experienced? Not as an object, but in and through every conscious experience. In the Kena Upanishad, a question is asked. Kena shitam patati preshitam mana Kena prana prathama prayiti yukta Kena shitam vacham imam vadanti Chakshu shrotram kaudeva yunakti Kena Upanishad, one of the Upanishads, starts with a question. The question is very deep and very philosophical. Imagine, thousands of years ago, they are asking this question about consciousness. By what do we experience our thoughts? All these thoughts come from where? Prompted by what do we have this experience of speaking? Words coming out. What shines upon, illumines, powers our eyes and ears by which we see and hear and smell and touch? Which means the question is, what is behind all our conscious experiences? And the answer is consciousness. But instead of giving that answer, answer the teacher gives a very interesting answer. What is the answer given by the teacher? Shrotrasya shrotram manaso mano yat vachoha vacham sau pranasya prana chakshushas chakshur atimuchya dhira pretyasman loka damrita bhavanti. Beautiful, very powerful answer. What is the answer given? You want to know what is that which by which the ears can hear, the eyes can see, and the tongues can, can speak, the mind can think. You want to know that? Yes. Listen, it is the ear of the ear, the eye of the eye, uh, the tongue of the tongue, uh, the mind of the mind. Why does he say that? Instead of saying it's consciousness. Why, why say that? It's a very skillful answer. If you say it is consciousness by which you experience everything, consciousness through the eyes you see, consciousness through the ears you hear, consciousness through the organ of speech you are having the conscious action of speaking. What do I mean by conscious action of speaking? 
there is a physical biological movement going on here lungs voice box tongue there is a neurological movement going on in the brain you can scan it and see but apart from all of that which which makes you speak these words apart from all of that don't you all have the conscious experience of speaking i am having it when you speak isn't it a conscious experience or is it just a movement of lungs and tongue and spirings in the brain it's consciousness it's it's awareness there's awareness there so if the teacher says it is consciousness then um what will happen is the student will immediately start looking for something called consciousness student will say oh think that oh yes the answer to my question is consciousness let me find out that consciousness what will happen never will never be able to find it out because it's the one which is looking it can never be objectified instead of saying that the teacher gives a very skillful reply if you want to know what illumines what enables you to hear and smell and touch and think and speak then it is the ear of the ear what do you mean by ear of the ear when you say ear of the ear the very language says something different from the ear but in the ear in the in the auditory system which enables the ear to do what it does something different from the mind but in the mind which enables the mind to do what it does it's like if you ask the question what makes the fan go round and round what makes the microphone amplify sound what makes the light shine hmm? we all know the answer don't look puzzled this is the 21st century <laughs> electricity electricity but suppose you give the answer it is the bulb of the bulb the fan of the fan the microphone of the microphone then you realize oh it is something which is other than the microphone but in the microphone making the microphone do what it does something in the fan which is other than the fan but in the fan making it do what it does and something that same thing one very same thing which is in the bulb in the fan in the microphone the, apart from all of them yet pervading them and making them do what they do each of them does a different thing but they are all doing it because of the presence of something we know it's electricity this is a good example there is this one consciousness in all these systems which enables them to do what they are doing they're doing it biologically mechanically but it's all of it is given a conscious dimension because they're all you know, you have a conscious experience because of the presence of that one thing so it's a very beautiful way of explaining what consciousness is and how is it different from mind and sense organs and this biological system all right what works the mind if pure consciousness is not affected by the material world and is only the witness what is it that enjoys the senses the body or the mind good this is the question which is a nice follow up to the earlier question so what is consciousness this is pure consciousness but then what works the mind if pure consciousness is unchanging if you actually want to use the mind and the sense organs using something operating something means it must be changing an operator who operates a car you operate a car then you have to move a little bit also 
You have to use the steering and the brakes and so on and so forth. If consciousness is just steady and unchanging, then how will it operate the mind, mind and sense organs and so on? The idea is all activity is in nature. Body and mind. All activity is in body and mind. But it requires the presence of consciousness. This idea is not in Vedanta. This is actually taken from Sankhya. Sankhya philosophy talks of two realities. The reality of nature. Time, space, matter, energy. And a separate reality called consciousness. And they interact. Their interaction is our lives. We are consciousness and yet in and through a physical system, a biological system. So they say Prakriti and Purusha. And the example they give is two friends, a lame person and a blind person. The blind person is very strong but can't see. And the lame person can't walk but can see very well. So the blind person takes his friend on his shoulders and this person sits on the shoulders of his friend and guides. Go right, go left, do this, like a GPS, you know. So, they both end up going where they want to go. There is, so, activity is done by nature. Which is symbolized by the blind person who can't see. Can't see means it's a, that's a symbol for no inner awareness is there. It's just activity, energy, movement. In, uh, matter and the awareness aspect is given by consciousness and both act together what is the mechanism according to Vedanta the mechanism lies in the mind the mind is very subtle it's still part of matter according to Sankhya, Yoga, Vedanta mind and matter are not two different things the duality of mind and matter he does not hold true here mind is also a kind of matter according to Vedanta or Sankhya it's a subtle matter. But the special property of the mind is, it is so subtle and pure, it can reflect consciousness. So that it, consciousness shines in the mind. And the mind is part of the physical system. As it acts, it acts through the nervous system and the body, and consciousness illumines all of it. So wherever the mind is there, the brain and the nervous systems are also become endowed with awareness. And so we feel awareness. Where? up to the tip of our nervous systems. Wherever the nervous system is working, the brain is working, we feel awareness. This is how they interact. This is a Sankhyan idea. I'm not going into the Advaita idea, which is a different thing. Um, it has a different perspective altogether. Let's see. Who? I hope you have got questions. Hold on to your questions and I'll ask you to raise your hands afterwards. Yes. Who decides the particular body in which Nirguna, <coughs> excuse me, Brahman is manifested, like Thakur. Is this a contradiction to that thou art? Uh, could you repeat that question? Who decides the particular body in which Nirguna, Brahman, is manifested, like Thakur? Is, is this a contradiction to that thou art? Okay, a lot of things seem to be involved in this question. If I try to understand this question, <laughs> Nirguna Brahman manifested in a body. That's one part of the question. The second part of the question is, who decides that body like Thakur? It seems to be a question about avatara, incarnation of God. And third is, is this uh, incarnation concept, does it contradict that thou art, the Advaitic idea? 
It seems a subject for a full talk. <laughs> Let me quickly give the answers, maybe a little cryptically, but that's the best we can do given the time. Nirguna Brahman manifested in the body. You missed a step there. Nirguna Brahman, if you're talking about Brahman without any attributes, existence, consciousness, bliss, that all, that's all that exists. You cannot talk about worlds and bodies and, and limited life. That's the ultimate reality. Existence, consciousness, bliss. But with the power of Maya, that ultimate reality is God. Sanskrit term, Saguna Brahman. Saguna Brahman is the God of the universe which projects this entire universe. Then the law of karma comes into play. Then the individual beings also come into existence. That Saguna Brahman itself reflected in different um, minds, antakkarana, subtle bodies, becomes individuals. According to their karma, they get bodies. As one body dies, we go on to other lives, we get other bodies. How? According to our karma. Who does this? God, Saguna Brahman. That absolute reality with the power of Maya is the architect of the entire universe. Not directly the architect, the architect is Brahma. So God gives, sort of subcontracts it out to, to Brahma. So Brahma is the guy who comes and makes this universe for God. But we are joint partners, we individual beings. It is our karma, based on that God gives us our bodies. We don't have the power to make a universe or this, these bodies. God alone has the power to make a universe and these bodies. But what we have the power to do is do karma. And so we get bodies according to what we deserve. So it's ultimately a joint production. My karma plus all the hard work put in by the good Lord. And so that gives me this life and this body. That's as far as ordinary beings are concerned. In the case of, he says, like Thakur, like Sri Ramakrishna. In the case of incarnations, it's not karma. The incarnations are none other than God himself. The Lord coming down to earth, the word made flesh in biblical terms. Saguna Brahman, through the power of Maya, special power of Maya called, called Yoga Maya, the Lord assumes a form for Leela, for for fulfilling the divine purpose. In Gita it is said to re-establish religion, to rescue the, the uh, to uplift the wicked and to give enlightenment to the, to the good, uh, to reform the wicked and to, up, to enlighten the good. He comes age after age as incarnations. That is a special play of the Lord. It's not part of the regular thing. It's like the incarnations like Krishna or Christ or Ramakrishna are handcrafted. We are machine produced. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Vivekananda himself says in the inspired talks, he says, nature has two kinds of products. One is the world and all of us. And the other one is a special product once in a while, like Krishna or Christ. Once in a while, the Lord uses the machinery of nature to make a special product for himself. Ordinary bodies and minds will not do for the Lord. So he comes in a divine incarnation out of love for our welfare. So that is Thakur. And the last one was, last part was, does it contradict Tattvamasi? No. And from the Advaitic point of view, ultimately, 
the Lord Saguna Brahman and the incarnation of the Lord, like Krishna or Christ or Ramakrishna, and all of us, we are ultimately all the same Brahman. That's what Tattvamasi says. But at the level of incarnation, there is a difference. You can't go to Christ or Krishna or Ramakrishna and say, you and I are the same. <laughs> Evidently, we are not. In expression, we are not. As a matter of principle, we might be. And we know that only because the Lord has told us that. That's how we know. So, as a matter of expression, no. The divine God and the individual are very, very different. That's why Sri Ramakrishna said to Vivekananda, He who was Rama, he who was Krishna is in this body Ramakrishna, but not in your Vedantic sense. Not in your Vedantic sense. Not in your Vedantic sense. What is in the Vedantic sense? In your Vedantic sense, yeah, you can say, yeah, everybody is, he who was Rama and Krishna is also me. Because everybody, Rama and Krishna and me, we are all Brahman. Not in that sense. Sri Ramakrishna says in a special sense that the divine has come down once again as an incarnation. Avatara means coming down as an incarnation. So, if you say, does it contradict Tattvamasi? Not in the ultimate reality. But practically speaking, there is a difference between incarnation and an individual being. All right. Are we done with the consciousness questions? No. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> what has made the difference between the mind, intellect, and samskaras, etc., of Swami Vivekananda and ours? What has cleaned his antakama? If it is consciousness, then why has it not cleaned our antakarna? Mm. What makes the difference between the mind of Vivekananda and my mind? <laughs> Why, uh, if his mind is pure, if the mind of a saint is pure, what purified it? Did pure consciousness purify it? Because in that case, I am the same pure consciousness. Why doesn't it purify me? Well, that's the play of the world. That's maya. But let me answer this. It's an interesting question. Ultimately, what leads to enlightenment? The realization that I am Brahman. The presence of Brahman within me, that, does that lead to enlightenment? If it did, then everybody would be enlightened. We are all Brahman. A very nice example is used. Just the fact that you are Brahman, you and I are Brahman, is not enough to free you from samsara. We are all Brahman. The greatest saint is Brahman. The grossest sinner is Brahman. The highest of the angels is Brahman. Devatas is Brahman. The lowest of the meanest of the creatures is also Brahman. But that does not mean everybody gets enlightened and free. Then what makes the difference? The example is this, very nice example. The sun shining out there right now on Central Park, it helps the grass to grow. Right now it's spring and the grass is turning green and growing. The sun is helping it. It's because of the sunlight that this all grows. Now, if you take a magnifying glass and focus the sun rays on a dry stalk of grass. Magnifying glass, you know, which focuses light. And focus the, the sun ray on a dry um, leaf of grass, dry blade of grass. Then what will happen? Yes, you'll see it starts smoking and burning. The same sunlight which helps the grass to grow can burn the grass also. The grass can be burned by the same sunlight. But it requires the magnifying glass. It requires a special focus. Otherwise, 
the sunlight is not going to burn the grass rather it helps the grass to grow it is the same brahman which allows the universe to exist and the universe to appear in this way and samsara to go on merrily it is because of brahman that the samsara exists because of gold that the ornament exists because of water that the waves in the ocean exist the greatest of storms in the you know the great tsunami waves in the ocean they are there because of the water without the water no waves would be possible this whole storm of samsara we are living through it's possible the real culprit is none other than god brahman <laughs> because of brahman's existence this entire samsara appears and so brahman is not against the samsara brahman is not going to remove remove samsara also brahman is not going to free us from bondage also because we are in bondage right now what frees us from bondage what frees us from samsara knowledge oh, good we have been attending many vedanta classes <laughs> she said knowledge yes what ties us to samsara is ignorance that i am brahman and the knowledge that i am brahman will free me from samsara the fact that i am brahman will not free me from samsara fact that i am brahman remains always true when i become aware of that fact as a living reality i am free from samsara samsara is caused by delusion delusion is due to ignorance and ignorance is removed by knowledge delusion in sanskrit adhyasa ignorance in sanskrit agyana knowledge in sanskrit gyana gyana comes like that focusing the magnifying glass which focuses the same consciousness of of, of brahman into that it's like that brahmakara vritti i will not go into the details but those who have studied vedanta you know that the knowledge which enlightening knowledge which comes in the mind as a result of spiritual practice it's called brahmakara vritti the knowledge that i am brahman that's like the magnifying glass and that focuses the ever existent rays of the sun so like that the ever existent brahman shines through that knowledge and burns up samsara for us for the particular person who gets that knowledge very good done the oh three more three more okay let's just hear the questions and then we will come back to that later maybe when the body is damaged or dies only this body stops working who does it who does it lose why does it lose its consciousness when the body is damaged or or dies only this body stops working why oh the answer is straight because it stops working there is no manifestation of consciousness there oh and a question is consciousness is everywhere it's there in the damaged or dead body also right oh. and remember i had a nice conversation with a young monk in the himalayas we sitting we used to have talks sometimes so i asked him that you know he would oh he said that when the person dies the atman has gone from the body atman goes away he's right and wrong also i was little mischievous he said according to vedanta atman and brahman are the same he said yes brahman is everywhere in this universe yes is brahman there in the dead body has to be if it's there in the universe everywhere in the universe then brahman and atman are the same so atman is also there in the dead body he was puzzled he says yes it has to be there then what goes away from a body it's called the jivatman or the subtle body it goes away when the subtle body goes away consciousness is no longer reflected in the subtle body and the the manifestation of consciousness the activities are no longer seen in the dead body it's not possible instrument is broken 
little while ago we discussed how does consciousness interact with 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 the body by being reflected in the mind it is no longer reflected in the mind because the mind cannot the subtle body antakarana it cannot stay in a dead body it cannot function anymore so it leaves it's called the jivatma it leaves transmigrates goes to other worlds is reborn in another body but existence consciousness bliss as brahman is everywhere in fact the other way around everywhere is in brahman when you say brahman is everywhere we are accepting that brahman pervades space rather space is in brahman we say brahman is eternal rather time is in brahman brahman is beyond time and space anyway the answer is this consciousness in the sense of brahman is certainly there in the dead body and in living body everywhere but that reflected consciousness is not there because the reflecting medium the mind has gone the, the subtle body you know in vedantic terms are more precise sukshma sharira upon the death of death of the physical body subtle body leaves how do memory or samskaras travel from one birth to another if mind and body are destroyed where does the samskara get stored easily answered mind and body are not destroyed in death what is destroyed clearly what do doctors seeing being see being destroyed body and people take it that the mind there also has been destroyed why because of two reasons one is we have a very materialistic view of the mind now that it is something produced by the brain brain is destroyed it is buried or and it rots in the ground or it is burnt up in a in a funeral pyre so it's gone if the mind is something produced by the brain then the then the uh, mind is also gone but who said that the mind is produced by the brain there is a mind brain interaction no doubt about it but there is still now there is no causality which has been established that the mind is produced by the brain number 1 the second reason why doctors think that the or materialist reductionists think that the mind is gone when the body is gone is because the functioning of the person is no longer seen when the body dies you don't see the person talking speaking and saying i am dead oh i am dead <laughs> no there are no activities present so you you feel that the person is not there anymore person is gone but it could just be because the instrument is not working if the microphone stops working and i talk you can't hear me that doesn't mean i have stopped speaking the instrument is because there are uh, um, interesting uh, uh examples of people under deep anesthesia and they can still they're still aware but unable to express anything because the body is out of their control now there's some terrible examples of people feeling pain in anesthesia also but they can't express it uh because the anesthesia has worked up to that extent cutting off your connection with the body which has hasn't cut, cut off your awareness of the body also now go deeper suppose your awareness of the body is also cut off then you will not be aware of the world outside you will be not be aware of the body but you as in the mind it's not gone the mind can go elsewhere like a machine breaks down a computer doesn't mean the data is gone you just can't access it because the computer is not working anymore take that hard disk and put it in another computer it will work even if the hard disk is gone download from cloud into another computer <laughs> it will work same data you will get back new body same person comes back same tendencies may not be the same memory last one 
Does awareness always need a vehicle for it to exist? Now, careful. Awareness does not need a vehicle for it to exist. If it requires a vehicle to exist, this is called materialist reductionism. The vehicle is matter, a body. If consciousness needs a body to exist, then its existence is dependent on the body. Then the body becomes the reality and the consciousness becomes a byproduct, what is called an epiphenomenon. It's the other way around. Consciousness exists by itself, according to Vedanta, according to Sankhya, Yoga, Buddhism. Consciousness exists by itself, expresses itself, manifests itself through a body. Now, does that body exist other than consciousness? If you say it does, it's Sankhya philosophy, Yoga philosophy. If you say the body and the mind and the entire universe are all manifestations of that one consciousness, consciousness itself manifests body, mind and universe and shines through them, that's Advaita philosophy. But in any case, consciousness is fundamental in these philosophies. Good news, you are fundamental, not your body. If you are the product of your body, then when the body goes, you are gone. But if you are the reality and the body is your product, a real product or a projection, in whatever case, you exist even without the body. But you require the body to shake hands with another body. <laughs> All right. We're done? Individuals have asked other questions. All right. Well, this is uh, the questions on consciousness. So done. Yeah. I think we should give the live audience two chances now because... The internet audience got so many questions in. I'll come to you. Come. Can you come here and ask the question? Please tell us your name and ask the question. My name's Bill. And actually I have two questions if you... Oh good, go ahead. <laughs> Every morning you hear there's a reading of the Bhagavad Gita. At, at the Vivekananda retreat, originally we, we read a book also. Right now we're reading Reminiscences of Swami Vivekananda, the new edition. It's quite thick. And this morning, Swamiji was talking to an uh, Indian gentleman who was living in London. They became very good friends. I can't think of his name, unfortunately. Uh, and he was studying Advaita. And Swamiji was teaching him Advaita. And uh, he was quite scholarly. Um, and to encourage him, Swamiji said, never belittle yourself. You are Brahmin. Yes. But then I thought, the biggest obstacle to realizing this is our, our pride in our small self. So how does that, we have to demolish that f false pride and yet maintain the dignity that we are Brahmin. Right. So this is a good question. The obstacle to enlightenment, obstacle to freedom, is being trapped in the small ego, which ties us to one individuality. And, being, and then the product is pride. I am something great, inflating that little small ego. So overcoming that pride, transcending that small ego, that is essential for spirituality. Now, If you believe I am Brahman, the vast, the absolute, I am God, then uh, how can you overcome the pride? Lead to pride. In, uh, I, this very same question was asked to me um, a couple of years ago. We were in Loyola College in, in uh, Los Angeles. And uh, Chris Chappell, who is a professor there, he asked the same question. How do you avoid 
pride in the path of Advaita. Now you see, the point is to overcome the limited ego. Not to be identified, overcome means not to be identified with that littleness. This can be done in two ways. One is make yourself so big that you transcend the little ego. The problem is one ego against the other. But if I make myself big enough that not only me, all of us are one reality. Then I transcend this one little reality. It, the, the needs of this little one do not matter so much. What matters is the whole, all of us. I identify myself with everybody in the universe, not with one being. That's one way of doing it. But some people are mentally not constituted to do that. There's another way of doing it. Make yourself very small. I am nothing. One, sometimes the best way is identify yourself with everything and behave as if you are nothing. I identify myself with the all and behave as if I am nothing. That I am, I am the lowest of the low, I am the servant of the servants. Make yourself very big or make yourself very, very small. But don't stay in between. <laughs> we all stay in between. That's why we get trapped in, at this human scale. Um, Girish Ghosh said that Maya could not, the net of Maya could not trap two persons. One is Vivekananda who made himself so big that Maya couldn't catch, catch him. He burst out of the net of Maya. He became one with the universe. And the other one is Nag Mahashai, the great devotee from Bangladesh, Deobhog. He made himself so small that he easily slipped through the snares of Maya. Not me, but thou, my Lord. Not me, but thou, my Lord. Naham tuhu tuhu. Not me, not me, but thou, my, thou, my Lord. I am nothing. Thou alone are everything. That's one way of transcending the small ego. And the other one, becoming very big, is another way of transcending the small ego. The attitudes are different. Look at what, what Nag Mahasaya says, I am nothing. But Vivekananda says, I am everything. Both have overcome the ego and pride. For both, that's one person, the ego rooted in this body and mind is an obstacle. It's not to be identified with. You cannot identify with one body and mind and say, I am important and yet be small and humble to everybody. You cannot. You cannot be identified with one small body and mind and say, I am important and yet say, I am all of them. The attitude is different. When Vivekananda was asked, what is humility? Look at the attitude towards humility of Vivekananda and Nag Mahasaya. Vivekananda was asked, what is humility? He said, humility does not consist in being a doormat. It consists in seeing the, the greatness in the other person. So respecting, seeing the greatness, seeing the divinity in the other person. We were talking about seeing God in everybody. That is real humility. Just the opposite again. That's also great. When Nag Mahasaya was asked by a monk, why do you say that you are nothing, that you are the lowest of the low? Vivekananda did not like this. He wanted to say that we are, he wanted everybody to say that we are great, believe in your own greatness. What was Nag Mahasaya's reply? He thought about it carefully for a moment and he said, what you are saying is right. 
But what I say is a fact. I see this. That I am the lowest of the low. What can I say except tell the truth about myself? That's also very genuine. Both have overcome the ego. And both help others also. Nagmas's life inspired so many people. It had an immediate effect on people around him. And so of course did Vivekananda. I think it was Josephine McLeod who said um, that I have met many great people in my life. She moved in high society. She met many people, uh, elite of society at that time. She said, I have met the Tsar of Russia at that time. And she said, when I met the Tsar, I felt how great he is and how insignificant I am. But when I met Vivekananda, I felt how great he is and how great I am. That's something that, that Vivekananda could inspire in everybody. It would blossom in, in people. They would stand up straighter in his presence. The other way around, Nagmasa, I'll look at the impact he had because of his, he kept himself low. Once monks came to his house to visit him, he and his wife, they were very devout. They were like sh lives of shining saintliness they lived for the rest of their lives. So they lived there and they would receive everybody as God coming to their house. And they treated the monks so, with so much you know, care. They were all about uh, taking care of these young monks who had come to see the great devotee. And here's the great devotee running around them trying to take care of these uh, young boys who have just put on the cloth uh, as if they are God themselves. And they got very embarrassed and they said, we can't stay here anymore. We have to run away because of the hospitality of Nagmasha and his wife. So next day they went to the train station. Nagmasha took them to the train station, always remonstrating that, oh, I, I wish you could stay a little longer. Uh, he would be like that, you know, where uh, termites were eating away the, the posts of the house. He said, let them, the Lord has, is eating away, has, has accepted the gift of my poor house. Where there, were, there was no firewood to cook for the guest. He had cut down his own house to burn the firewood and feed the guest. Like that. So they go to the railway station. The monks insist on leaving because they can't take it anymore. The, this tremendous hospitality of Nagmasha and his wife. And they complete self-sacrifice. He would do that. Bangladesh is a country of big rivers. So they would always have to cross rivers. Nobody would get in the boat with Nagmasha. They always knew, they only knew him as a saint. They revered him. Because if you get in a boat with Nagmasha, he will insist on rowing. He, he won't let anybody else do any hard work in his presence. Because he always rush forward to take the load of you. The boatman and all, they all refused to go on the same boat with him. How can you sit in the boat when the saint is there, this frail old man, he's, he's trying mightily to row the boat. Because you are the beloved Lord in his eyes. So they go to the railway station, the monks who insist, we are going to leave just now, we can't stay one moment longer with you. And the train was packed. And the monks couldn't get a seat, they were trying to get in the seat. And Nagmasa standing on the platform burst into tears and wailed loudly that, Oh poor me, because uh, how, uh, how um, miserable I am. It is because of my bad karma that the holy ones could not get a seat, place to sit. And the people around became so ashamed of his tears, they all get, got up and left their seats. <laughs> Let them say, stop crying. <laughs> it would immediately change people around him. How can you stay unchanged when you are in the presence of such a, such a one of light? Uh -huh. shining forth and who continuously places himself at your feet. It, can, it cannot but transform you. Yes, that's a beautiful question. Do you remember your second question? Yes.
Shravana Manana Nidhyasana. Nididhyasana, yes. Hearing, pondering, soaking it up. Yes. That's how I translate those. And then if one has good fortune, one realizes the Brahman. Now, if that blessed event happens, then one should be, if I understand it correctly, filled with bliss. Yes. And if a person thinks he's had that realization but is not filled with bliss, yes. I think we conclude that he did not have the realization. Yes. In a person who is not getting the benefits of realization, let alone the rest of us, that person himself should be honest enough to admit that it is not, a person might have had glimpses, and that's very valuable, but that's not the end of the road. Sri Ramakrishna used to say, somebody sees a little something, sees a light, hears a divine sound, or thinks I've accomplished everything. No, that's not the end of the road. Until one finds the benefit of Vedanta, it promises bliss and transcendence of suffering. If I have nothing to complain about truly, I'm happy with whatever life throws at me. Really happy. Really I don't have nothing to grumble about. And I'm filled with peace and joy which does not depend on money or people or achievements or praise. An internal joy bubbling up continuously, unaffected by anything in the world. Then I can say that, yes, I have made progress in Vedanta. But I have realized I am Brahman. And I'm grumbling, and I'm fighting, and I'm greedy, and I'm quarrelsome. There's something wrong with that, that realization. <laughs> it's a way of deceiving oneself. And so sometimes the people on the path of knowledge, Vedanta, the very intelligent people, so they can they find the intelligent ways of deceiving themselves also. <laughs> I'll give you an example. I clearly see that I am Brahman. Why do you get upset? Why do you get angry? Why, why are you complaining? Oh, upset, complaining, angry are all in the mind. Mind, I am the witness of the mind. Upset mind, quarreling mind, <laughs> complaining mind. And I'm sorry, that's not a very inspiring view of enlightenment. <laughs> You're right. Full-blown enlightenment should take you beyond all of these things. Definitely it should. They say, if there is raga dvesha, if there is hatred and passion in the mind, clearly this is not enlightenment. The enlightened person should be beyond Raga Dvesha. You had, you had a question? Come. Then we'll come back to the internet audience. My name is Dr. Zala. Uh, my question is, I was reading Mandukya Upanishad, and uh, can you ex exactly explain the meaning of all? Relations to the Mandukya Upanishad. Oh, that's a whole question. Can you explain the meaning of Om in relation to Mandukya Upanishad? Uh, I think uh, that's uh, um, at least one talk in itself. Um, I gave a talk about this actually recently. It's called The Essence of All Vedanta. The Essence of All Vedanta a few weeks ago. It's on YouTube. Um, the whole talk can be seen as an explanation of Om in relation to Mandukya Upanishad. But basically, the idea is this. The Mandukya Upanishad says, just like any Upanishad, if you know yourself, you know the Absolute. And knowing the Absolute, one goes beyond sorrow, attains the highest. So you have to know yourself. How do you know yourself? By an inquiry into the self. And the Mandukya Upanishad shows us how to do that inquiry. 
It does so by using OM. How does it do so? You see, when you look at the self, you find four aspects of the self. Three aspects are well known. Waking, we all have a waking experience right now, for example. Dreaming, when we fall asleep, we all have dreams. And deep sleep, dreamless sleep. These three are well-known experiences for everybody. We all have these experiences. But all of these experiences appear to one unchanging consciousness called the fourth aspect of the self, Turiya. And that is what we really are. Not the waking self, not the dreamer, not the deep sleeper, but the one consciousness which appears, which is experienced as waker and the waking world, dreamer and the dream world, Deep sleeper and the deep sleep darkness blankness. All of these, the experiencer and the experience, these, these pairs, there are three pairs. Waker and the waker's world, dreamer and the dream world, deep sleeper and the deep sleep darkness, which are experienced in one consciousness. This one consciousness is called Turiya or the fourth in relation to waking, dreaming, deep sleep, it is the fourth, but it is actually the one reality in which the other three appear. So this is the basic analysis of the self in Mandukya Upanishad. Now using Om, you say you relate, Om is made of four sounds actually, or four, four aspects, they call it Matra. Four Matra. What are the Matras or four aspects of Om? One is A, then U. You'll say, I don't find an A and an U. you say, I'll find only O. In Sanskrit grammar, A and U together produce the sound O. So when you say Om, you don't say Aum. You say Om because A and U have merged into the O. So there is this A in the O, U in the O, and the last part is M. And then the fourth aspect of Om is the silence which ensues um, after the Om. When you chant Om and fall silent, mm, silence, that is also taken as the part of the Om, the fourth aspect. Now what you do is, you have four aspects of the Atma, of the Self, and four aspects of Om. I hope you remember the four aspects of the Self. What are they? Waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and Turiya, the consciousness in which all of these three are experienced. And the Om, four aspects. A, U, U don't say U. U is the closest English that we can get. A, U, M. But in Sanskrit, A, U, Ma. U and then M, Ma. And beyond that, silence. Now can you match? Put A, relate A to the waking state. Just in your mind, make an association. Relate U to the dream state. Dreamer and the dream state, U. Deep sleep. You the deep sleeper and your deep sleep experience. Mm. And the consciousness which experiences all of this is the silence from which these three sounds uh, um, arise from silence and fade away into silence. That silence you relate to the consciousness. As you chant Om, mentally, mentally go through quickly your whole waking life. All your dream life, just any, any general dream, the experience of dreaming, the blankness, the merged experience of deep sleep and, this, and the, the consciousness in which all of these are experienced. 
एंड कीप रिलेटिंग अ एंड साइलेंस सो दिस अ साइलेंस ओम फॉलोड बाय द साइलेंस दिस बिकम्स व्हाट इज कॉल्ड इन संस्कृत आलंबना सपोर्ट फॉर द माइंड टू मेडिटेट अपॉन द सेल्फ as you chant om you are actually meditating upon the four aspects of the self pointing towards the whole point is to realize yourself as that silence consciousness today in the morning we did that little while ago that meditation which we did that's another way of approaching that silence consciousness through the practice of listening you're listening sounds are arising and disappearing you slowly become aware sounds are arising and disappearing in silence and that silence is not an object it is you the consciousness it's exactly the same thing which you do in a uma silence so om is the practice is a support it's in fact a condensed version of the whole vedantic analysis of the self sleeping dreaming deep sleep and consciousness so that's om and mantra can we go back to the um internet question ask one more question from the internet audience yes how can we approach everyday activities at various stages of our life with an attitude of service and in a manner that avoids undue stress and brings peace and they have a second question yes how do we rest our priorities and refocus our energies in other constructive activities when the normal duties of family life are more or less completed hmm. who who's asked this question saswati saswati okay so how do we ca- carry on the daily activities of life without stress without strain one is that the more our attitude is unselfish the less strain we have the more we are doing it for i me mine our attention is always on what am i getting out of this and there is strain am i succeeding am i failing because it bears upon my success my failure but the more i am altruistic more i have a service attitude I don't want anything from this work that I am doing let it benefit everybody the family let it benefit my my organization let it benefit uh, the society I'm doing it for the people around me I wish everybody well the the work will not create tension I saw with amazement how the swamis in the in the ashram when I joined the ashram as as a young monk as a novice I saw the swami is doing so much work they're probably doing much more work than my parents at home were doing uh, the people in the world were doing these people were doing much more work and they were so relaxed about it it didn't seem to be creating tensions and giving them gray hairs and wrinkles on the forehead how the reason was they were doing it as a worship of god my beloved lord i serve my lord in all these beings whether it is patients in a hospital whether it's students in a school i am serving them all as seeing god in them shiva gyane jeeva seva that's one attitude if i see my beloved lord in all beings around me in my work my work becomes a worship it will never create tension in you when you do puja of god in the altar 
here. Will it create tension in you? It shouldn't. If you are a very type A Manhattan personality, it might create tension. Even worshipping God might create tension. You know, perfectionist. It happens sometimes. There's an American who came to the monastery uh, in India and he wanted to learn the ritualistic worship. And he was taught, he went to the best worshipper there among the monks. Americans always want the best. So he went to the best worshipper there uh, who, know, who is an expert, who performs the Durga Puja and everything. And uh, so this Swami taught him the worship. And this American guy, he, he said, Wow, this is wonderful. But I see that it takes 90 minutes. Can you cut it down to 45? <laughs> you save 45 minutes thereby, you know. And this poor Swami said, I don't know, really know how to cut it down, the Lord's service to 45 minutes. <laughs> You're always looking for ways to save time and make it more efficient. No, but when you're worshipping the Lord, when you're with your beloved, nothing is, is, uh, is uh, stressful, though you're working so hard. The mother works so hard for the child, but doesn't consider it, it is stressful, there's no doubt. You say, Swami, you haven't been a mother, that's why you think it's not stressful. <laughs> it's pretty stressful, but all the stress is smoothed over because of love, love of the child. Without that, you couldn't do it, all this hard work. Then the second attitude uh, which uh, helps is, first one is devotion and second one is of course love of God. So second one. Third one which helps is focus. One thing which creates strain and stress in our lives is scattering our mind to many things, multitasking. There was an article in Time magazine which showed that by multitasking, you don't get much more done in the same amount of time. You end up repeating work, work gets done poorly, and you generate stress and strain within yourself. It's much better to take up one thing and finish it faster, faster one after another. Focus. Uh, empty your mind of other concerns and focus on the task at hand. I remember a story. There was a great Swami in India many, many years ago, Swami Nirvedananda. Uh, during the Second World War and he was establishing an ashram, a home for students in near Calcutta. But when the war started, he was very interested. At that time, no CNN nor TV or cable news. It was a radio. So you'd get information of what's happening in Europe and in, in the war on the East, Far Eastern Front. And he would follow the movement of the armies on the map and everything with so much interest that the other Swamis, they asked him, Swami, how do you meditate if you keep your mind on, on, the, on the war news? And this Swami looked, he was a great man, he, he, he looked puzzled and he said, but when I am meditating, I don't think of the war. And when I'm thinking of the war, I don't think of meditation. <laughs> it's a great thing. When we are doing something, some work, you think this, I'm wasting my time, I should be meditating. When I'm meditating and feeling sleepy and drowsy, why am I wasting my time like this? I should be doing some work. <laughs> this is our ordinary state of mind. Swami Vivekananda says, empty the bucket. Do what you are, whatever you are doing with your, with, with your fullest possible attention. With the greatest possible attention. Make it a habit to put the greatest possible attention to whatever you are doing. The person you are with at this moment is the most important person in your life. 
the work that you are doing at this moment that is the most important work that you are doing the place where you are at this moment is the most important the holiest place in the world hmm. not rhetorical literally true if you understand advaita you will see it is literally true why is that the holiest place in the world because you are present so i am not you are brahman the time place where brahman is present that's the holiest thing your reality is brahman you are present there you are present at that time that's the holiest place that's the holiest time focus there so focus is another way of um overcoming stress and the last i think the best way to overcoming stress is of course advaita <laughs> to know where is the stress you are immortal self you are not subject to birth to death you have all the time in the world not on the world you have all the time in the universe take your time relax <laughs> enjoy the game the game of life which is going on life after life you have you, you don't have to be rushed into anything this universe exists for your experience so enjoy it take your time take the scenic route swami vivekananda said take your time <laughs> So you will see I've given four approaches to overcoming stress in your life and if you have not noticed carefully I've just mentioned the four yogas the karma yoga bhakti yoga raja yoga and gyana yoga um, that was a question from the internet audience uh, yes we'll take one more question from the live audience come Swamiji, my name is Pankaj, and uh, I have two questions. One is uh, maybe simple. Uh, the first one is, uh, what is the difference between uh, Kula Devi and uh, Ishta Devata uh, in the beginning of the Kula Devi? Yes, Kula Devi in rituals actually as a mm -hmm. yeah, when we grown up actually we have a Kula Devi. I understand. Devi, yes, you know. and the second question. Second question is uh, while we are doing meditation when close the eyes we have so much so many experience so many different experience like vibration like a sound like a colors like a brightness sometimes darkness and most of the time actually when i close my eyes i feel myself much more bigger than what i am like the volume goes much more bigger all those experience how does it help me to go to the next level or what right. are those experiences also actually all right first of all kuladevi and uh, ishtadevata you see in um, hindu families sometimes in in uh, in a community or in a family it is a tradition to worship one form of god it could be in a male form or a female form devi yes in hinduism you know the same reality it can be worshiped in so many forms so sometimes particular families particular communities they have uh, from ancient times onwards for centuries they have a devata or a devi which is worshiped it's the same lord same brahman saguna brahman in that particular form it's become a tradition in your family the advantage of having such traditions is one is born into a tradition so the progress is much faster so that's why these credit traditions should be kept alive often this kula devi itself is made into ishta devata by the guru if the if there is a family guru the family guru might initiate you into a mantra of your family deity itself so that sometimes the ishta devata and kula devi will match sometimes it may not match 
for for you particularly the guru may initiate you into the mantra of some other form of god so this is the difference between chosen deity and the family deity sometimes they can be the same and there are advantages to that sometimes specifically if you go into a different tradition than your family your guru will give you ishta devata in that tradition remember all of them refer back to that one existence consciousness place just a variety of names and forms variety of names and forms means rituals will differ mantras will differ stories will differ traditions will differ and that's all good more richness the second question you asked was about experiences the classic book for this is patanjali yoga sutra as you meditate and you focus various kinds of experiences come to you it may be visual as you said lights it may be sounds uh, uh, oral um visual it may be even uh, olfactory that the divine fragrance comes so all of these are signs of a satvic mind a mind becoming more satvic but our aim should be depending on the path suppose i am meditating ishta devata has been given to me mantra has been given to me those experiences come good enjoy it but don't get stuck in that back to the ishta devata back to the mantra go on with your journey and don't get stuck there that's like we're going on a journey um you take the the i95 or something like that and you're going on a long journey and once in a while these uh, signboards come see your goal is to go to a particular place in india you have those milestone markers so your destination you're going to delhi for example uh, your delhi is uh 100 kilometers away and delhi is 50 kilometers away so oh, delhi is 50 kilometers away stop the car jump and uh, hold the milestone and hug it there no you note that delhi is 50 kilometers away you are happy and you go forward don't stop so go on back to the ishta devata and mantra or if you are on the path of knowledge in doing vedantic meditation all those experiences you see wonderful but become aware of the one which is experiencing it turn inwards again yes the witness consciousness is important good can we take one more question from the internet audience this will be the last one i think because i have the welcome news the food is ready <laughs> this comes from mr prashana pincha former chief commissioner for persons with disabilities ministry of social justice and empowerment is what i experience right now the appearance of reality or appearance as reality why doesn't reality reveal itself in its originality or for that matter why don't or can't we see the reality as it is and there All are right. two, two more questions let, after that from let, let me answer this one this is a very deep question are we seeing the appearance of reality or appearance as reality Look at these words appearance and reality I like the statement by professor Bradley who was a great philosopher in England at the turn of the 20th century he said appearance is never real and reality never appears <laughs> the very english word appearance it means suppose you say that person appears to be an intelligent person what does it mean <laughs> not intelligent <laughs> Uh, appears to be a nice person doesn't mean that is nice so what appears is not uh, not real and reality never appears it's also a very nice play on the english word appear appears means to be to present oneself as what one is not 
So the reality will never appear. Reality is reality. It will never appear to some, be something else. So appearance, the, what we are seeing is the appearance of reality in the sense we do not know the reality as it is. Hence we experience reality as it is not. We experience reality as it is not. This is called Maya. Shankaracharya said, Atasmin Tadbuddhi. What is not there, you see, see there. It is one non-dual reality, but we see it as a duality. The problem is not to see reality as it is. Reality remains as it is all the time. The problem is to know reality as it is. After knowing, knowing in the sense, I am that reality. After knowing that, what will happen? The same appearance will continue. Now I know that this appearance is the appearance of reality. This, will, this very appearance will take me back to Brahman. Now what is happening is, because I do not know the Brahman in the background, this very appearance is, is trapping me in samsara, in suffering, in, in, uh, in duality. So, the difference between reality and appearance is ignorance and knowledge. In this very appearance, I will recognize the reality if I am if enlightened. enlightened. If I am not enlightened, then I will take this appearance itself as the reality. Yeah, that is a very well, well put question. Let's hear the other questions. I don't know if we'll have time to answer it. Why does this play of consciousness give so much experience of sorrow, suffering, pain, fear, frustration, failure, and boredom, etc.? Okay, let me give one line answer. Why does this play of consciousness give rise to such sorrow in so many ways? From minor irritation to great sorrow. Why does this happen? Because we do not recognize it as the play of consciousness. Somebody harassed me, um, troubled me, was mean to me, uh, and I'm so unhappy, so miserable, and suddenly I wake up, I'm sitting on my bed. Oh, oh it was a dream. Then that person who harassed me, troubled me, or, who was that person? That's me. Because every, everybody in my dream is in one sense a product of my own mind. Whom shall I be angry with now? Whom shall I hate? Whom shall I blame? Blamer and blamed are but one. Whom to blame? Whom to praise? When praiser and praised, blamer and blamed are but one. That happens to our dreams because we wake up from it and look at it from our waking point of view. The enlightened person recognizes the entire universe as his or her own self. Whom will you blame? A little child comes and punches you. Maybe in anger. But from your point of view, it's your grandson or your granddaughter, it's all fun. Vivekananda put it this way. Little puppies play and bite each other and quarrel with each other and roll on top of each other and wrestle with each other. Vivekananda says, it is all a play of puppies. All of this life. At the, it does not matter. Don't be terrified by it. At the most, it's cute. But that you need to take a very, very high standpoint to say such a thing. The answer, direct answer to it is, because we do not recognize it as a play of consciousness, that's why it's suffering. If you recognize it as a play of consciousness, then the Buddha or Ramakrishna or Ramana Maharshi or Vivekananda, they don't say that they are in suffering. Though we might, we might say, how much suffering? Throat cancer. Ramana Maharshi had a, had a, had a, had a, had a abscess from which he died. Uh, 
We will say, how much suffering, how much pain? And Raman Mashi was so poor, he wore only a, a, a loincloth and sat in a cave. So much poverty. <laughs> he doesn't think he's poor, he thinks he's the universe. If you recognize the play of consciousness as the play of consciousness, no problem at all. What's the last question? Doesn't the experience of Maya run counter to the principle of non-dualism or is Maya also a part of reality? If so, how? They are deep questions. Doesn't the experience of Maya, follow this carefully, doesn't the experience of Maya run counter to the principle of non-duality? Look at these two words. The answer is in the question itself. Experience of Maya, principle of non-duality. The principle and the experience are never contradictory. The principle of non-duality holds true even when you are having the experience of duality. Our problem is in ignorance, we experience duality and take it to be real. Here is a real duality and we are experiencing it. The enlightened person says there is a real non-duality and it is experienced as duality. It is really one. A dream for example. It's really one. It's only your mind. But you experience it as people and events and animals and things and places, activities. A million different things. A whole of samsara comes up in your dream. But it's all one thing. It's your mind only. The experience of the multiplicity of the dream does not contradict the principle that it is one reality, a dreamer. Good question. Maya is causing all of this. The Maya is not a part of reality. Maya is at best an explanatory mechanism from our vantage point of ignorance. Once you transcend it, there is only one reality, Satchidananda, and you are that. That's I think a good note to finish. <laughs> we have run out of time. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tatsat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu